0: So quite a um, quite a long reading this morning because we're looking at uh, one Samuel chapters four to seven. Now I wonder if there's anyone here who would describe themselves as a control freak. What a what a way to start a sermon. Uh, If if you think you might be, but you're not sure, there's a few uh, tests that you can do, a few uh, simple questions uh, that you can ask. Uh, Number one, are you a nervous passenger? Uh, If you are, either you regularly travel with someone who's not a very good driver. (laughs) And uh, and I must say, Tissa is a nervous passenger, and it is because I'm not a very good driver. (laughs) Um, But the other option, well, I'll I'll let you decide. Uh, The next one, uh, can you bear to see the dishwasher packed differently to the way that you do it? (laughs) Now, if you're a control freak, you might even be confused by this question. You're thinking, surely there's only one way to pack a dishwasher. (laughs) Or when you're sat with someone searching for a film on Netflix, do you have to have the remote do you refuse to relinquish it? Now, I can see a few people getting digs in the ribs. So I should just say, I'm only joking. These are, uh, th- these are not definitive tests, uh, just fairly reliable indicators. <laughs> um, but I do think that all of us have a tendency to try to control things that, A, we can't control, and B, we're not supposed to control, to the point where sometimes we even try to control God. In today's passage, um, the Israelites try to control God, and as you've heard, uh, it didn't go well for them. So it began with Israel going into this crucial battle against the Philistines, which they lost badly. Um, 4,000 Israelite soldiers died. And the elders got together and they said, why did God allow this to happen? He's supposed to be with us. He's supposed to be fighting for us. What's going on? Now, if you've read the book of Judges that precedes 1 Samuel, or the first three chapters of Samuel, uh, you will know exactly why things were not going well for Israel. Israel had rebelled against God actually in all kinds of ways, but the main thing is that they had turned to other gods. They were worshipping the gods of the pagan nations around them, uh, bowing down to idols of wood and stone. And the nation's leaders had become horribly corrupt. It's not that God doesn't care for his people. He wants to protect them. He wants to give them victory in battle, but they have walked out from under his umbrella of protection, so to speak. It's like a parent who wants to care for and protect their child, but if their child runs away from home and lives in a squat or on the streets, they have uh, rejected the person or the people who were protecting them. Uh, they put themselves in danger. Things are not going to go well from that point. But of course, uh, all loving parents will welcome their children back again like the father in the parable of the prodigal son. If we completely reject and rebel against God, then it's as if we have walked out from under his umbrella of protection. I rebelled against God for many years and kept making a complete mess of my life, and uh, that's what's happening to Israel at this point. But notice they don't stop to look at their relationship with God. There's no acknowledgement of their sin and wrongdoing. Instead, they say, let's get the Ark of the Covenant. The word Ark actually means box. And the Ark of the Covenant is basically a big fancy box that contained the Ten Commandments. So they say, let's get the Ark and bring it to the front line because that will make us really powerful. If we've got that in our possession, God will have to fight for us. We'll be invincible. Wrong answer. That's just superstition. It's like hanging across from the um, rearview mirror in our car and expecting it to stop us having a crash, even though we drive like Lewis Hamilton or Sterling Moss. Religious superstition is just a very crude way of trying to control the situation, trying to control God even. Anyway, the Ark of the Covenant is taken from the tabernacle, that's that big tent in Shiloh, and it's brought to the front line and it's accompanied... By Hophni and Phinehas, those two corrupt priests that we heard about last week. Uh, you remember that Eli was the spiritual leader of Israel, and his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were in it for everything they could get. They took the choice cuts of meat from the animals that were to be sacrificed. They slept with the women who served at the entrance to the tent of meeting. They were brazenly unscrupulous, and Eli. Uh, their father, neglected to take any action against them. And this was the state of the nation's leadership. So the Ark arrives with these two vile characters, Hophni and Phinehas, acting like they're big shots. And the whole camp erupts in this great roar of triumph. It, it, It was as if the ground shook beneath them. And there's great irony in this because the Ark, as I said, contained the Ten Commandments, the foundation of God's law the very law that Israel had despised, rejected, and ignored. If only they were as excited about God's law as they were about the physical presence of the ark. And for us, if only we focused on our relationship with God and what God wants from us, instead of focusing all the time on what we want God to do for us, we'd find life so much more fulfilling. Anyway, the ark arrives, a thunderous shout goes up, and the Philistines think that a god has entered the Israelite camp. And um, that's probably how many of the Israelites viewed it, as if you can carry God around and use him as a weapon of war. You can see that it's all about control, can't you? The Israelites were trying to control God. We Let's get God up to the front line. But the result of all this was that one army, the Israelites, became complacent, and the other army, the Philistines, were scared out of their wits, and they fought with utter desperation. And in the end, 30,000 Israelite soldiers were wiped out, along with Hophni and Phinehas. And their demise was foretold in chapter 3, that we looked at last week, when God appeared, not appeared, but um, spoke to Samuel when he was just... Uh, 12 years old. Uh, You'll notice that Samuel isn't mentioned in this part of the narrative, and I think mainly it's to disassociate him from the decision to use the Ark of God as a weapon. That idea certainly didn't come from Samuel, nor did it have his approval. So Israel suffers this huge defeat. Hophni and Phinehas are killed, and worst of all, the Ark of the Covenant is captured by the Philistines. And there's a soldier from the tribe of Benjamin who runs to Shiloh. You remember, that's where the tabernacle is. That's where they took the ark from. He he runs there to break this devastating news that the ark has been captured. And when he does, the whole town lets out this terrible cry, this scream of anguish. It's the exact opposite of the shout of triumph that was heard when the ark entered the camp. And I think uh, that contrast is there deliberately. Now, uh, Eli, by this time, is an old man, he's half blind, and he's sitting by the roadside waiting to hear news, and he hears this terrible cry and wants to know what's happened. So the soldier, the messenger, tells him, Israel has been defeated, your sons are dead, the ark of the Lord has been captured, whereupon Eli falls off his chair, breaks his neck, and dies. And it, just an aside, but in verse 18, it mentions that Eli was heavy. Uh, and that's part of the reason why his neck broke. And I wonder, had he been enjoying the choice cuts of meat along with his corrupt sons? Uh, tragically, the shock of all this sent Eli's daughter-in-law, Phineas' wife, into premature labor, and she died shortly after the birth, which was obviously a much more common occurrence in those days but before she died, she named her son Ichabod, which literally means no glory. And she said, the Lord has departed from Israel. And the thing is, if we reject God, if we say, no, I don't want you. He will leave us alone. He will respect our free will to the point where he, he, he allows us to genuinely say no to him. God won't force his way into our lives. We say, God, I don't want you. We reject him. We turn elsewhere. He will leave us to it. But the point is, Israel was trying to control God, and it ended in tragedy. God God is not Israel's trophy. And just as God opposes pride among the Philistines, so too he opposes pride among his own people. If Israel want to experience God's covenant blessing, they must remain humble and obedient. Instead, they thought they could parade God around and force him to do what they wanted, even though they were completely rebelling against God. Let me give you an illustration. Imagine two friends, let's say they're young men. And one is uh, quite sort of skinny and scrawny and couldn't fight his way out of a wet paper bag. And the other one stands at two meters tall. He's 120 kilos. He's an undisputed mixed martial arts heavyweight champion And the two of them they go into a bar sounds like it's gonna be a joke. It's not gonna be a joke And the scrawny one Starts strutting about acting tough running his mouth off and picking fights He thinks he's invincible because he's got his mate this MMA fighter with him But he doesn't care about his mate Doesn't care how he might feel pretty much ignores him, doesn't even talk to him. But he likes having him there because it makes him feel strong. How long do you think it will be before that man, the professional fighter, is going to allow his friend to... Or Sorry, how long do you think that man, the professional fighter, is going to allow his friend to use uh, to use him as fuel for his pride, arrogance, and stupidity? After a while, he's going to walk out of the bar and leave his friend to it, by which time his friend will probably be so wrapped up in himself that he hasn't realized that the source of his overinflated confidence has left the premises and he gets himself into a whole world of trouble. Of course, all analogies break down. I'm certainly not comparing God to an MMA fighter. I'm just talking about two friends. But when we think that Israel treated God in that same way, I think we can see why God wouldn't stand for it. So Israel were defeated, and the Ark was captured by the Philistines. And if Israel treated the Ark superstitiously, the Philistines treated it disrespectfully. The Ark was taken to Dagon's temple in Ashdod and placed beside Dagon. Uh, Dagon was a, a Philistine god literally carved out of stone. Now, the Ark of the Covenant wasn't God, nor could it be weaponized. But it was holy, and it did belong with God's people, so God was not going to allow it to remain in enemy hands. In the Old Testament, we get a frequent comparison between the man-made gods of the pagans and the one true God of Israel. Human beings like man-made gods because they can make them in their own image, Uh, the Bible tells us that we are made in God's image, but man likes to make God's in his own image. And it's interesting, man-made gods will only ever ask you to do or ask its followers to do the things that they want to do. And It won't ask them to do things that they don't want to do. You see, a man-made God can be controlled, can be molded to, to what we want from a God or what we think we want. Now, few people in our society literally bow down to graven images of wood and stone, um, but people do bow down to other gods. We have been created to worship, and if we don't worship God, we just end up worshiping something else. Did you know that every human being is a worshiper of some sort? In our culture, we worship money, sex, lifestyle career loved ones you you hear it said he worshipped the ground she walked on Uh, it's good to love and value those who are close to us but they can't replace god but most of all our culture worships self we turn ourselves into little gods and we expect the whole world to revolve around us but none of those things are worthy of our worship and neither was Dagon. He was just a lifeless block of stone. And that first night that the ark was in Dagon's temple, Dagon toppled over onto his face. And in the morning, they came and they found him like that, and they had to put him back up again. It's crazy, isn't it? They're worshiping a god that can't even stand itself up. And I suppose they, they were hoping it was a coincidence. But then the second night, Dagon toppled forward again, and this time his hands and his head break off. Now, in the ancient world, they believed that different gods had jurisdiction in different places. But the message to the Philistines was clear. The God of Israel is king, far above every other so-called God. His sovereignty extends into every kingdom and nation. His power is absolute, even in Dagon's temple. Not only was Dagon toppled and smashed, but there was an outbreak of, uh, our translation said, tumors or boils. And the uh, Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, indicates that these boils may have been in the nether regions, so particularly unpleasant. It's not hard to imagine why the people of Ashdod wanted to get shot of this thing, the ark. Uh, So they moved the ark to Gath, and the same thing happened there. So then they moved it again to Ekron, And again, the same thing. This ark is getting moved from city to city like a hot potato. Nobody wants it. And after seven months, the Philistine leaders decide that they've got to get rid of this thing. Now, you might say, well, why did it take them so long to reach that point? I mean, if that was me and that was happening, I'd want to get rid of it a lot lot sooner than that. Well, to return the ark would be to acknowledge the power of Israel's God. That'll be seen as a sign of weakness and encouragement to the Israelite army to attack. That's the way the Philistines were seeing it. And when you're suffering with painful boils in the nether regions, uh, the last thing you want is for anyone to attack you. Um, but I wonder, do we ever stubbornly resist God's power because we fear what might come next? we set our course and we rigidly stay with it, regardless of all the different things that God is saying to us along the way. I think we all do that sometimes, don't we? We can be very stubborn. But the Philistines' problem was this, how to return the ark without inciting the Israelite army to attack. And they came up with a cunning plan. So they decided to get two cows that had never been yoked, had never been worked, and they hitched up, a cart to the cows and they put on the cart the Ark of the Covenant along with an offering of gold and the gold uh, rather bizarrely was uh, was shaped in the form of rats which I assume accompanied this plague but it doesn't say it rats and actually the boils themselves they shaped the gold into the, the kind of models of the boils uh, pretty weird uh, and they put it all on the uh, cart and the idea was that they, they set the cart off and if the cart went straight into Israelite territory, uh, then the plague really is from the Lord. But if those cows that were towing the cart turned around and went back to where their calves had been penned up, which would actually be the natural thing for them to do, well then it was all just a nasty coincidence and a false alarm. So that was their kind of final test. Is this really from God? Well, needless to say, the cart went straight back into Israelite territory and it uh, ended up in a place called Beth Shemesh. Uh, But the people of Beth Shemesh still treated the Ark like a trophy. They said, yeah, we got the Ark back. Now we're invincible again. What can possibly go wrong? And a big crowd of them gathered around the ark, and they're all looking inside it and meddling with it. They knew they weren't supposed to do that. There are such strict warnings about that for God's people in the Old Testament. And as a result, 70 of them died because they'd looked into this, this ark. So then the ark gets moved to Kiriath-Jerim. And it's like, we've got this really powerful thing, but we don't know how to control it. And it's like, well, firstly, it's not the ark itself that's powerful, and secondly, what you're trying to do is control God, to parade him around, to use him as a weapon of war. But finally, in the end of this narrative, Israel gets it. In chapter 7, verse 2, it says, Then all the people of Israel turn back to the Lord. At this point, Samuel re-enters the narrative. They, they throw out all the foreign gods, their idols, their Asherah poles, their, the, 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 the things they use for Baal worship, every, all of it went Uh, They commit to following the one true God of Israel only. Uh, There's fasting, there's confession, and there's genuine repentance. And after that, when the Philistines attack, they're routed not by the Israelites, but by God himself. There's this tremendous noise of thunder, and like the ground shaking. It sends the Philistines into sheer panic. They break ranks and they flee, and the Israelites pursue them. And there's a very simple message here. Israel were rebelling against God and things were not going well for them. Israel were rebelling against God and things were not going well for them. We're not surprised by that, are we? That doesn't mean that if we're struggling in life, it's because we're rebelling against God. Godly people still experience trials and difficulties and struggles and pain and tragedy. But if we're not seeking the Lord if we're not cultivating our relationship with God through Jesus Christ, if our faith is more like religious superstition, if we want the gifts but not the giver, if it's all about what Jesus can do for us, but we don't really want to draw close to Jesus, if that's the extent of our faith, we can't really expect very much, can we? Not because God doesn't want to bless us, but because we're not allowing God to bless us. Think again of the parable of the prodigal son. I'm going to read it in a a moment as well. Uh, When the son left his father's house, when he broke relationship with his father, at first he was having a good time, or he thought it was, but things go downhill fairly fast. Everything unravels, and he ends up in poverty, longing to eat the food that he's feeding to the pigs. It was only when he returned to his father's house, that his father was able to love him and care for him and protect him and bless him. This narrative about Israel that we're reading today is almost like the parable of the prodigal son on a national level. Israel were completely rebelling against God to all intents and purposes. They didn't want anything to do with God. They'd rather worship Baal. And things were not going well. And they're wondering why. Israel got to the point where instead of trying to control God and use him, they mourned their sinful behavior and they repented of it. They returned to the Father. And for us today, let's continue to re-evaluate our relationship with God. God is not at our disposal to be controlled. Our question shouldn't be, why isn't God changing my situation? Rather, our question should be, Lord, how do you want me to change? Lord, how do you want me to change? Christ is there for us. We need to repent of our old sinful behavior and turn towards him with our whole hearts, remembering that God is in control and not us. We can't use God as a kind of religious superstition. It's a relationship. We love God. God, we love Jesus Christ. We have a close relationship with Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we acknowledge that that very often we kind of want to wheel you out, take you out the cupboard, take you out the box, and get you to do what we want, but without actually spending any time investing in in the relationship that we have with you without trying to hear from you, without uh, trying to discern what it is that you're saying to us, how you want us to change, how you want us to live. Father, we repent of the times when we've used prayer like a magic lamp that we rub to get the genie and get the answer we want. Father, we pray that we will recognize the need to genuinely repent of our sin, of all that we know to be wrong, to turn to you, and to keep turning to you on a daily basis, putting you first and longing to have a close relationship with you and striving for that, knowing that, that your word promises us when we draw close to you, you draw close to us. So we pray, Lord, this morning we will draw close to you and experience the wonderful fulfillment of having you draw close to us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Israel rebelled against God, and things were going badly. And it's only when they returned to God uh, that things happened to change. Um, and I want to read part of the parable of the prodigal son. And the important thing in all this, because sometimes we read the Old Testament, and you know the, the four chapters of Samuel we've just been looking at are pretty heavy. If you read them all yourselves, it's a lot to take in. But we need to read this through the lens of Jesus. And we need to, to, to come back to what is God's heart. So as I read this, I want you to uh, take note of the father's response and the father's reaction to his son. So this is um, Luke 15, 11 to 24. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, father, give me my share of the estate. That's effectively telling his father that he wanted him dead, because you'd only get that when your father died. So he's basically saying, Father, I want you dead. I want your money. He said, give me your share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. And there we see the heart of our father in heaven. We see the heart of Jesus who longs for us to return to him, who longs for us to step back under his umbrella of protection that doesn't mean that our lives will go swimmingly there'll never be any problems but certainly i think we can create a lot of problems in our lives as well